Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, Section 3, Practical Inferences. The extraordinary influence that has lately appeared, causing an uncommon concern and engagingness of mind about the things of religion, is undoubtedly in the general from the Spirit of God. There are but two things that need to be known in order to such a work's being judged of. The facts and the rules. The rules of the Word of God we have had laid before us. And as to the facts, there are but two ways that we can come at them, so as to be in a capacity to compare them with the rules, either by our own observation or by information from others who have had opportunity to observe them. As to this work, there are many things concerning it that are notorious, in which unless the Apostle John was out in his rules, are sufficient to determine it to be in general the work of God. The spirit that is at work takes off persons' minds from the vanities of the world and engages them in a deep concern about eternal happiness, puts them upon earnestly seeking their salvation and convinces them of the dreadfulness of sin and of their own guilty and miserable state as they are by nature. It awakens men's consciences and makes them sensible of the dreadfulness of God's anger, causes in them a great desire and earnest care and endeavor to obtain his favor. It puts them upon a more diligent improvement of the means of grace which God has appointed, accompanied with a greater regard to the word of God, a desire of hearing and reading it, and of being more conversant with it than they used to be. And it is notoriously manifest that the spirit that is at work in general operates as a spirit of truth, making persons more sensible of what is really true in those things that concern their eternal salvation is that they must die, and that life is very short and uncertain, that there is a great sin-hating God to whom they are accountable and who will fix them in an eternal state in another world, and that they stand in great need of a Savior. It makes persons more sensible of the value of Jesus who was crucified and their need of him, and that it puts them upon earnestly seeking an interest in him. It cannot be but that these things should be apparent to people in general through the land. For these things are not done in a corner. The work has not been confined to a few towns, some remoter parts, but has been carried on in many places all over the land, and in most of the principal, the populous, and public places in it. Christ in this respect has wrought amongst us in the same manner that he wrought his miracles in Judea, it has now been continued for a considerable time, so that there has been a great opportunity to observe the manner of the work, and all such as have been very conversant with the subjects of it see a great deal more that, by the rules of the Apostle, does clearly and certainly show it to be the work of God. And here I would observe that the nature and tendency of a spirit that is at work may be determined with much greater certainty, unless danger of being imposed upon when it is observed in a great multitude of people of all sorts, and in various places, than when it is only seen in a few in some particular place that have been much conversant one with another. Few particular persons may agree to put a cheat upon others, by a false pretense, and professing things of which they were never conscious. But when the work is spread over great parts of a country, in places distant from one another, among people of all sorts and of all ages, 
and in multitudes possessed of a sound mind, good understanding and known integrity, there would be the greatest absurdity in supposing from all the observation that could be made by all that is heard from and seen in them, for many months together, and by those who are most intimate with them in these affairs, and have long been acquainted with them, yet, yet it cannot be determined what kind of influence the operation they are under has upon people's minds. Can it not be determined whether it tends to awaken their consciences or to stupefy them, whether it inclines them more to seek their salvation or neglect it, whether it seems to confirm them in a belief of the scriptures or to lead them to deism, whether it makes them have more regard for the great truths of religion or less. And here it is to be observed that for persons to profess that they are so convinced of certain divine truths as to esteem and love them in a saving manner, and for them to profess that they are more convinced or confirmed in the truth of them than they used to be, and find that they have a greater regard to them than they had before, are two very different things. Persons of honesty and common sense have much greater right to demand credit to be given to the latter profession than to the former. Indeed, in the former, it is less likely that the people in general should be deceived than some particular persons. But whether persons' convictions and the alteration in their dispositions and affections be in degree and manner that is saving, is beside the present question. If there be such effects on people's judgments, dispositions, and affections, as has been spoken of, whether they be in a degree and manner that is saving or not, it is nevertheless a sign of the influence of the Spirit of God. Scripture rules serve to distinguish the common influences of the Spirit of God as well as those that are saving from the influence of other causes. As by the providence of God I have for some months past been much amongst those who have been the subjects of the work in question, and particularly have been in the way of seeing and observing those extraordinary things with which many persons have been offended, such as persons crying out aloud, breaking, being put into great agonies of body and so on, and have seen the manner and issue of such operations and fruits of them for several months together, many of them being persons with whom I have been intimately acquainted in soul concerns before and since. So I look upon myself called on this occasion to give my testimony that, so far as the nature and tendency of such a work is capable of falling under the observation of a bystander, to whom those that have been the subjects of it have endeavored to open their hearts, or can become it by diligent and particular inquiry, this work has all those marks that have been pointed out. And this has been the case in very many instances, in every article and in many others. All those marks have appeared in a very great degree. The subjects of these uncommon appearances have been of two sorts either those who have been in great distress from an apprehension of their sin and misery, or those who have been overcome with a sweet sense of the greatness, wonderfulness, and excellency of divine things. Of the multitude of those of the former sort that I have had opportunity to observe, there have been very few, but their distress has arisen apparently from real proper conviction, and being in a degree sensible of that which was the truth. And though I do not suppose when such things were observed to be common, the persons have laid themselves under those violent restraints to avoid outward manifestations of their distress, 
that perhaps they otherwise would have done, yet there have been very many in whom there has been any appearance of feigning or affecting such manifestations, and very many for whom it would have been undoubtedly utterly impossible for them to avoid them. Generally, in these agonies, they have appeared to be in the perfect exercise of their reason, and those of them who could speak have been well able to give an account of the circumstances of their mind and the cause of their distress at the time, and were able to remember and give an account of it afterwards. I had known of very few instances of those who in their great extremity have for a short space been deprived in some measure of the use of reason, but among the many hundreds and it may be thousands that have lately been brought to such agonies, I never yet knew one lastingly deprived of their reason. In some that I have known, melancholy has evidently been mixed, and when it is so, the difference is very apparent. Their distresses are for another kind, and operate quite after another manner, than when their distress is more from mere conviction of sin. It is not truth only that distresses them, but many vain shadows and notions that will not give place either to scripture or reason. Some in their great distress have not been well able to give an account of themselves, or to declare the sense they have of things, or to explain the manner and cause of their trouble to others, and yet I have had no reason to think were not under proper convictions of sin, and in whom there has been manifested a good issue. But this will not be at all wondered at by those who have had much to do with souls under spiritual difficulties. Some things of which they are sensible are altogether new to them. Their ideas and inward sensations are new, and what they therefore know not how to express in words. Some who, on first inquiry, said they knew not what was the matter with them, have on being particularly examined and interrogated, been able to represent their case, though of themselves they could not find expressions and forms of speech to do it. Some suppose that terrors producing such effects are only a fright, but certainly there ought to be a distinction made between a very great fear or extreme distress arising from an apprehension of some dreadful truth, a cause fully proportionable to such an effect, and a needless causeless fright. The latter is of two kinds, either first, when persons are terrified with that which is not the truth, of which I have seen very few instances unless in the case of melancholy, or secondly, when they are in a fright from some terrible outward appearance and noise, and a general notion thence arising. These apprehend that there is something or other terrible they know not what, without having in their minds any particular truth whatever. Of such a kind of fright I have seen very little appearance among either old or young. Those who are in such extremity commonly express a great sense of their exceeding wickedness, the multitude and aggravations of their actual sins, their dreadful pollution, enmity, and perverseness, their obstinacy and hardness of heart, a sense of their great guilt in the sight of God, and the dreadfulness of the punishment due to sin. Very often they have a lively idea of the horrible pit of eternal misery, and at the same time it appears to them that the great God who has them in his hands is exceedingly angry, and his wrath appears amazingly terrible to them. 
God appears to them so much provoked, and his great wrath so increased, that they are apprehensive of great danger, and that he will not bear with them any longer, but will now forthwith cut them off, and send them down to the dreadful pit they have in view, at the same time seeing no refuge. They see more and more of the vanity of everything they used to trust to, and with which they flattered themselves, till they are brought wholly to despair in all, and to see that they are at the disposal of the mere will of the God who is so angry with them. Very many in the midst of their extremity have been brought to an extraordinary sense of their fully deserving that wrath, and the destruction which was then before their eyes. They feared every moment that it would be executed upon them. They have been greatly convinced that this would be altogether just, and that God is indeed absolutely sovereign. Very often some texts of scripture expressing God's sovereignty has been set home upon their minds, whereby they have been calmed. They have been brought as it were to light God's feet, and after great agonies a little before light has arisen, they have been composed and quiet, in submission to a just and sovereign God. But their bodily strength, much spent, sometimes their lives, to appearance, were almost gone, and then light has appeared, and a glorious Redeemer with his wonderful, all-sufficient grace has been represented to them often in some sweet invitation of Scripture. Sometimes the light comes in suddenly, sometimes more gradually, filling their souls with love, admiration, joy, and self-abasement drawing forth our hearts after the excellent, lovely Redeemer, and longings to lie in the dust before him, and that others might behold, embrace, and be delivered by him. They had longings to live to his glory, but were sensible that they can do nothing of themselves, appearing vile in their own eyes, and having much jealousy over their own hearts. And all the appearances of a real change of heart have followed. And grace has acted from time to time after the same manner that it used to act in those that were converted formerly, with the like difficulties, temptations, buffetings, and comforts, excepting that in many, delight and comfort have been in higher degrees than ordinary. Many very young children have been thus wrought upon. There have been some instances very much like those in Mark one twenty six and chapter nine twenty six of whom we read that when the devil had cried with a loud voice and rent them sore, he came out of them. Probably those instances were designed for a type of such things as these. Some have several turns of great agonies before they are delivered, and others have been in such distress which is passed off, and no deliverance at all has followed. Some object against it as great confusion, when there is a number together in such circumstances making a noise, and say God cannot be the author of it, because he is a God of order, not of confusion. But let it be considered what is a proper notion of confusion, but to breaking that order of things in which they are properly disposed and duly directed to their end, so that the order and due connection of means being broken they fell of their end. Now the conviction of sinners for their conversion is the obtaining of the end of religious means, 
Not but that I think the persons thus extraordinarily moved should endeavor to refrain from such outward manifestations. They could do so, and should refrain to their utmost at the time of their solemn worship. But if God is pleased to convince the consciences of persons so that they cannot avoid great outward manifestations, even to interrupting and breaking off those public means that they were attending, do not think this is confusion or an unhappy interruption any more than if a company should meet on the field to pray for rain. It should be broken off from that exercise by a plentiful shower. Would to God that all the public assemblies in the land were broken off from their public exercises with such confusion as this the next Sabbath day. We need not be sorry for breaking the order of means by obtaining the end to which that order is directed. He who is going to fetch a treasure need not be sorry that he is stopped by meeting the treasure in the midst of his journey. Besides those who were overcome with conviction and distress, I've seen many of late who have had their bodily strength taken away with a sense of the glorious excellency of the Redeemer and the wonders of his dying love, with a very uncommon sense of their own littleness and exceeding vileness attending it, with all expressions and appearances of the greatest abasement and abhorrence of themselves, not only new converts, but many who were, as we hope, formally converted, have had their love and joy attended with a flood of tears and a great appearance of contrition and humiliation, especially for their having lived no more to God's glory since their conversion. These had a far greater sight of their vileness and the evil of their hearts than ever they had before, with an exceeding earnestness of desire to live better for the time to come but attended with greater self-diffidence than ever, and many have been overcome with pity to the souls of others, and longing for their salvation, and many other things I might mention in this extraordinary work answering to every one of those marks which have been insisted on, so that if the Apostle John knew how to give signs of a work of the true spirit, this is such a work. Providence has cast my lot in a place where the work of God has formerly been carried on. I had the happiness to be settled in that place two years with the venerable Solomon Stoddard, and was then acquainted with a number who during that season were wrought upon under his ministry. I have been intimately acquainted with the experiences of many others who were wrought upon under his ministry before that period, in a manner agreeable to the doctrine of all orthodox divines. And of late, a work has been carried on there, with very much of uncommon operations, but it is evidently the same work that was carried on there in different periods, though attended with some new circumstances. And certainly, we must throw by all talk of conversion and Christian experience, and not only so, but we must throw by our Bibles and give up revealed religion, if this be not in general the work of God. Not that I suppose the degree of the Spirit's influence is to be determined by the degree of effect on men's bodies, or that those are always the best experiences which have the greatest influence on the body. And as to those imprudencies, irregularities, and mixture of delusion that has been observed, it is not at all to be wondered at that a reformation, after a long-continued and almost universal deadness, should at first when the revivalist knew, be attended with such things. In the first creation, God did not make a complete world at once. 
But there was a great deal of imperfection, darkness, and mixture of chaos and confusion. After God first said, Let there be light, before the whole stood forth in perfect form. When God at first began his great work for the deliverance of his people after their long-continued bondage in Egypt, there were false wonders mixed with the true for a while, which hardened the unbelieving Egyptians and made them to doubt of the divinity of the whole work. When the children of Israel first went to bring up the ark of God, after it had been neglected and had been long absent, they sought not the Lord after the due order. First Chronicles 15 verse 13 At the time when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also among them. The imprudences and errors that have attended this work are the less to be wondered at, if it be considered that chiefly young persons have been the subjects of it, who have less steadiness and experience, and being in the heat of youth, are much more ready to turn to extremes. Satan will keep man secure as long as he can, but when he can do that no longer, he often endeavors to drive them to extremes, and so to dishonor God, and wound religion in that way. And doubtless it has been one occasion of much misconduct, that in many places people see plainly that their ministers have an ill opinion of the work, and therefore with just reason durst not apply themselves to them as their guides in it and so they are without guides. wonder then that when a people are as sheep without a shepherd, they wander out of the way. A people in such circumstances stand in great and continual need of guides, and their guides stand in continual need of much more wisdom than they have of their own. And if a people have ministers that favor the work and rejoice in it, Yet it is not to be expected that either the people or ministers should know so well how to conduct themselves in such an extraordinary state of things, while it is new, and what they never had had any experience of before, the time to see their tendency, consequences, and issue. The happy influence of experience is very manifest at this day in the people among whom God is settled by abode. The work which has been carried on there this year has been much purer than that which was wrought there six years before. It seemed to be more purely spiritual, free from natural and corrupt mixtures, and anything savoring of enthusiastic wildness and extravagance. It is wrought more by deep humiliation and abasement before God and men, and they have been much freer from imprudences and irregularities, and particularly there has been a remarkable difference in this respect, that whereas many before in their comforts and rejoicings did too much forget their distance from God, and were ready in their conversation together of the things of God, and of their own experiences to talk with too much lightness, but now they seem to have no disposition that way, but rejoice with a more solemn, reverential, humble joy as God directs in Psalm 2, verse 11. Not because the joy is not as great, and in many instances much greater. Many among us who were wrought upon in that former season have now had much greater communications from heaven than they had then. Their rejoicing operates in another manner. It abases them, breaks their hearts, and brings them into the dust. When they speak of their joys, it is not with laughter, 
but a flood of tears. Thus those that laugh before weep now, and yet by their united testimony their joy is vastly purer and sweeter than that which before did more raise their animal spirits. They are now more like Jacob, when God appeared to him at Bethel, when he saw the ladder that reached to heaven and said, How dreadful is this place! And like Moses, when God showed him his glory on the mount, when he made haste and bowed himself to the earth. Let us all be hence warned, by no means to oppose or do anything in the least to clog or hinder the work, but on the contrary do our utmost to promote it. Now Christ has come down from heaven in a remarkable and wonderful work of his spirit. It becomes all his professed disciples to acknowledge him and give him honor. The example of the Jews and Christ's in the Apostles' times is enough to beget in those who do not acknowledge this work a great jealousy of themselves, and to make them exceeding cautious of what they say or do. Christ then was in the world, and the world knew him not. He came to his own professing people, and his own received him not. The coming of Christ had been much spoken of in the prophecies of Scripture which they had in their hands and it had been long expected, and yet because Christ came in a manner they did not expect, and which was not agreeable to their carnal reason, they would not own him. Nay, they opposed him, counted him a madman, and pronounced the spirit that he wrought to be the spirit of the devil. They stood and wondered at the great things done, and knew not what to make of them. But yet they met with so many stumbling blocks that they finally could not acknowledge him. And when the Spirit of God came to be poured out so wonderfully in the apostles' days, they looked upon it as confusion and distraction. They were astonished by what they saw and heard, but yet not convinced. And especially was the work of God then rejected by those that were most conceited of their own understanding and knowledge agreeable to Isaiah 29, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work amongst this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. And many who had been in reputation for religion and piety had a great spite against the work, because they saw it tended to diminish their honor and to reproach their formality and lukewarmness. Some upon these accounts maliciously and openly opposed and reproached the work of the Spirit of God, and called it the work of the devil, against inward conviction, and so were guilty of the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost. It is not to be supposed that the great Jehovah had bowed the heavens, and appeared here now for so long a time, and such a glorious work of his power, and grace, in so extensive a manner in the most public places of the land, in almost all parts of it, without giving such evidences of his presence, the great numbers and even many teachers in his church can remain guiltless in his sight, without ever receiving and acknowledging him, and giving him honor and appearing to rejoice in his gracious presence or without so much as once giving him thanks for so glorious and blessed a work of his grace, wherein his goodness does more appear than if he had bestowed on us all the temporal blessings that the world affords. 
A long-continued silence in such a case is undoubtedly provoking to God, especially in ministers. It is a secret kind of opposition that really tends to hinder the work. Such silent ministers stand in the way of the work of God, as Christ said of old, He that is not with us is against us. Those who stand wondering at this strange work, not knowing what to make of it, and refusing to receive it, and ready it may be sometimes to speak contemptibly of it, as was the case with the Jews of old would do well to consider, and to tremble at Paul's words to them. Beware, therefore, lest I come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it to you. Those who cannot believe the work to be true, because of the extraordinary degree and manner of it, should consider how it was with the unbelieving Lord in Samaria, who said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might this thing be? To whom Elisha said, Behold, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Let all to whom this work is a cloud and darkness, as a pillar of cloud and fire was to the Egyptians, take heed that it be not their destruction, while it gives light to God's Israel. It is probable that the stumbling blocks that now attend this work will in some respects be increased and not diminished. We probably shall see more instances of apostasy and gross iniquity among professors, and if one kind of stumbling blocks are removed, it is to be expected that others will come. It is with Christ's work, as it was with his parables. Things that are difficult to men's dark minds are ordered of purpose for the trial of their dispositions and spiritual sense, and that those of corrupt minds and of an unbelieving perverse cabling spirit see and might see and not understand. Those who are now waiting to see the issue of this work think they shall better be able to determine by and by, but probably many of them are mistaken. The Jews that saw Christ's miracles waited to see better evidences of his being the Messiah. They wanted a sign from heaven, but they waited in vain. Their stumbling blocks did not diminish but increase. They found no end to them, and so were more and more hardened in unbelief. Many have been praying for that glorious reformation spoken of in Scripture. Who knew them not what they have been praying for, as it was with the Jews when they prayed for the coming of Christ, and who, if it should come, would not acknowledge it or receive it. This pretended prudence and persons waiting so long before they acknowledge this work will probably in the end prove the greatest imprudence. Hereby they will fail of any share of so great a blessing and will miss the most precious opportunity of obtaining divine light, grace, and comfort, heavenly and eternal benefits that God ever gave in New England. While the glorious fountain is set open in so wonderful a manner, and multitudes flock to it and receive a rich supply for the wants of their souls, they stand at a distance, doubting, wondering and receiving nothing and are like to continue thus till the precious season is past. It is indeed to be wondered at that those who have doubted of the work which has been attended with such uncommon external appearances 
should be easy in their doubts without taking thorough pains to inform themselves by going where such things have been to be seen, narrowly observing and diligently inquiring into them, not contenting themselves with observing two or three instances, nor resting till they were fully informed by their own observation. I do not doubt but that if this is a course that had been taken, it would have convinced all whose minds are not shut up against conviction. How greatly have they erred, who only from the uncertain reproofs of others have ventured to speak slightly of these things. That caution of an unbelieving Jew might teach them more prudence. Refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Less happily you be found to fight against God. Whether what has been said in this discourse be enough to produce conviction, that this is a work of God or not, yet a hope for that future, they will at least hearken to the caution of Gamaliel, now mentioned, so as not to oppose it, or say anything which is even an indirect tendency to bring it into discredit, lest they should be found opposers of the Holy Ghost. There is no kind of sin so hurtful and dangerous to the souls of men as those committed against the Holy Ghost. We had better speak against God the Father or the Son than to speak against the Holy Spirit and His gracious operations on the hearts of men. Nothing will so much tend forever to prevent our having any benefit of its operations on our own souls. Now to apply myself to those who are the friends of this work and have been made partakers of it and are zealous to promote it. Let me earnestly exhort such to give diligent heed to themselves to avoid all errors and misconduct and whatever may darken and obscure the work and to give no occasion to those who stand ready to reproach it. The apostle was careful to cut off occasion from those that desired occasion. The same apostle exhorts Titus to maintain a strict care and watch over himself that both in his preaching and behavior might be such as could not be condemned, that he who was of the contrary part might be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of them. Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. We had need to be wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. It is of no small consequence that we should at this day behave ourselves innocently and prudently, we must expect that the great enemy of this work will especially try his utmost with us, and he will especially triumph if he can prevail in anything to blind and mislead us. He knows it will do more to further his purpose and interests than if he prevailed against a hundred others. We had need to watch and pray, for we are but little children. This roaring lion is too strong for us, and this old serpent too subtle for us. Humility and self-diffidence and an entire dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ will be our best defense. Let us therefore maintain the strictest watch against spiritual pride or being lifted up with extraordinary experiences and comforts and the high favors of heaven that any of us may have perceived. We had need, after such favors, and in a special manner to keep a strict and jealous eye upon our own hearts, lest there should arise self-exalting reflections upon what we have received, and high thoughts of ourselves, 
is being now some of the most eminent saints and peculiar favorites of heaven, and that the secret of the Lord is especially with us. Let us not presume that we above all are fit to be advanced as the great instructors and censors of this evil generation, and in a high conceit of our own wisdom and discerning assume to ourselves the heirs of prophets or extraordinary ambassadors of heaven. When we have great discoveries of God made to our souls, we should not shine bright in our own eyes. Moses, when he had been conversing with God in the mount, though his face shone so as to dazzle the eyes of Aaron and the people, yet he did not shine in his own eyes. He wished not that his face shone. Let none think of themselves out of danger of this spiritual pride, even in their best frames. God saw that the Apostle Paul, though probably the most eminent saint that ever lived, was not out of danger of it. No, not when he had just been conversing with God in the third heaven. See Second Corinthians twelve seven. Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. Lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin and is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working, of any lusts, whatever. It is ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or so dangerous consequence, and there is no one sin that does so much let in the devil into the hearts of the saints, and expose them to his delusions. I have seen it in many instances, and that in eminent saints. The devil has come in at this door presently after some eminent experience and extraordinary communion with God, and is woefully deluded and led them astray, till God has mercifully opened their eyes and delivered them, and they themselves have afterwards been made sensible that it was pride that betrayed them. Some of the true friends of the work of God's Spirit have erred and given too much heed to impulses and strong impressions on their minds, as though they were immediate significations from heaven to them, of something that should come to pass, or something that was the mind and will of God that they should do, which was not signified or revealed anywhere in the Bible without those impulses. These impressions... If they are truly from the Spirit of God or of a quite different nature from His gracious influences on the hearts of the saints, they are of the nature of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit and are properly inspiration, such as the prophets and apostles and others had of old, which the apostle distinguishes from the grace of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13. One reason why some have been ready to lay weight on such impulses is an opinion that they have had that the glory of the approaching happy days of the church would partly consist in restoring those extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. This opinion, I believe, arises partly through lack of daily considering and comparing the nature and value of those two kinds of influences of the Spirit, namely, those that are ordinary and gracious, and those that are extraordinary and miraculous. The former by far the most excellent and glorious, as the Apostle largely shows in 1 Corinthians 12.31. Speaking of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, he says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. In other words, a more excellent way of the influence of the Spirit. 
And then he goes on in the next chapter to show what that more excellent way is, even the grace of the Spirit, which summarily consists in charity or divine love. Therefore, I do not expect a restoration of these miraculous gifts in the approaching glorious times of the church, nor do I desire it. It appears to me that it would add nothing to the glory of those times, but rather diminish from it. For my part, I'd rather enjoy the sweet influences of the Spirit, showing Christ's spiritual divine beauty, infinite grace and dying love, drawing forth the holy exercises of faith, divine love, sweet complacence, and humble joy in God one quarter of an hour than to have prophetical visions and revelations a whole year.